I'm Suzanne Borden, Moment Magazine's Zoominar producer, and I'd like to welcome you to today's program, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter with historian Kai Berg and journalist Dan Revive. Today's Zoominar is being recorded. Please type your questions in the Q&A box and we'll try to get to as many as possible at the end of the session. Following the program, please visit Moment's website where you can subscribe to the magazine and register for our upcoming Zoominars. This Thursday, we will host a special program, Why We Still Write Holocaust Fiction, with authors Ruby Namdar and Ruth Franklin. And next Tuesday, join us for Jews, Music, and the American Dream with musicians Ben Sidron and Joe Alterman. Now for today's program. Kai Bird is an award-winning historian and journalist. He is the executive director of the Leon Levy Center for Biography. He is the acclaimed author of biographies of John J. McCloy and of McGeorge and William Bundy. He won the Pulitzer Prize for Biography for American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. His work includes critically, critical writings on the Vietnam War, Hiroshima, nuclear weapons, the Cold War, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and the CIA. His most recent book is The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter. Joining Kai today is Dan Revive. Dan is the author of books about Israeli espionage and diplomacy, including Spies Against Armageddon and Every Spy a Prince, plus Comic Wars, an account of how Marvel Comics went bankrupt, but was turned into a movie powerhouse by two Israeli Americans. He was a CBS News correspondent in Israel, Europe and Washington for 40 years, and then senior DC correspondent for Israel's I-24 News. Please welcome Kai Bird and Dan Revive. Thanks so much, Suzanne. Thank you. It's uh, great to uh, be here on another Moment Magazine Zoominar uh, with a wonderful writer. I've had the pleasure of uh, knowing him. We could say on and off for quite a few years, Kai Bird. And I think we have to begin with congratulations on a big book that's getting great reviews, The Outlier. That's your new biography of President Jimmy Carter. Congratulations on the book, Kai. Well, thank you, Dan. It's a real pleasure to be with you. And I've always enjoyed being interrogated by you. You're a great interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> Interrogation or not. Let's start, in fact, with a tough issue if we're talking about Jimmy Carter. Um, because a lot of people watching now, if they read Moment Magazine or they're in the wide community, they probably think a lot about Israel and they think about Jewish topics. And, and I even had some responses from people who said, you're doing what? You're spending an hour on, on Jimmy Carter? Oh, we don't like him, though the occasional person said, or should we? And so that's the open-minded people, of course, that you're writing for. But when it comes to Jimmy Carter and Israel, especially, I think especially after his presidency ended at the beginning of 1981, when the subject would come up, um, he seemed to be highly critical of Israel. You could say, therefore, he was more on the Palestinian side. He certainly seemed to admire greatly Egypt's president, Anwar Sadat. Jimmy Carter had brought together Anwar Sadat and the then Prime Minister of Israel, Menachem Begin, and, and achieved a peace accord, the Camp David Accords, peace between Israel and Egypt. And yet years later, Carter always seemed angry at the Israelis. So what's behind that? And if you will, what's the truth since you spoke, not just once, extensively with Mr. Carter uh, in recent years uh, about Israel and his feelings about Israel? Well, you've hit the nail on the head. <laughs> uh, yeah, all of those are obvious perceptions that, that Carter has acquired over the years, in the, particularly in the Jewish American community. 
Um, you know, let's let's get right to it too. I, I've had people in the course of this six-year project when I said I was researching Carter, they said, well, isn't he anti-Semitic? Not only anti-Israel, isn't he anti-Semitic? And, you know, of course that's not true at all. It's a sort of a ridiculous perception. He is a uh, extremely decent man, an, an ex probably our most decent politician to have occupied the White House in the 20th century. Um, honest, straightforward. He sometimes exaggerated his achievements like any uh, politician would, but there's not a, a prejudicial bone in his body with regard to African-Americans or the Jewish community, but he is from South Georgia. And you know, there was a lot of sort of cultural disconnect uh, when these Georgia boys arrived in Washington. And Carter, you know, he actually, um, you know, he's a born again Christian by his own description. And that's sort of weird to uh, some of us who are a religious or and particularly in the Jewish community, born again, Southern Baptist. It's when I started this book, I, I one of my hesitations was I just thought Georgia was a foreign country and I didn't understand Southern Baptist. I didn't understand race in the South. And by the way, in the mid 1970s, just remember he was running for president, got elected in 1976. Uh, that's a Washington DC reaction. Right, Carter, yeah. the outsider from Georgia, and the religious elements you say too, yeah. So it, there was a lot of cultural disconnect, but actually when Carter arrived in Washington, he brought with him uh, not just a few Jewish American allies, but his some of his closest aides in the White House, men like Stu Eisenstadt, or his communications director, Jerry Rafshoon, or his personal lawyer, Robert Lipschitz, and uh, David Rubenstein, who we all know today as this fabulously wealthy billionaire um, who endows many good things related to books, by the way. Uh, they were all Jewish. They were all deeply uh, admiring of Jimmy Carter, and they have all more or less stayed by him. Um, but you're right. Carter had a thing about the Middle East. And it was a surprising thing against all the advice of any of his aides from Zbig Brzezinski to Cy Vance, who all warned him, don't try in your first term to grapple with Middle East peace. It's a briar's patch. It, mm. uh, there's no political gain to be had there. And um, to remind people, by the way, Kai, opportunity popped up because Egypt's courageous president, Anwar Sadat, in 1977 offered to visit Israel and address the Knesset. And Menachem Begin thought of then as a hardliner you could never make peace with said, yes, come. And both Barbara Walters and Walter Cronkite helped shepherd that along in the American media, but that didn't mean an American president had to risk any political capital. That's true, right. But Carter got into trouble even before Sadat went to Jerusalem. And in fact, he was from day one in his administration, he was determined to try to bring peace to what he called and thought of as the Holy Land. And uh, with, you know, even though opposed by Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, he began inviting 
he first invited Rabin, the then prime minister, before Begin was elected in the spring of 77. Uh, they had a, a difficult meeting. He invited Anwar Sadat that spring of 77, and he found uh, Sadat to be surprisingly open and gracious, and so he took a liking to him, you're right. Um, and then suddenly Begin is elected prime minister that's late that spring, and that throws uh, uh, a wrench in the whole affair. And, but he invites Begin to come, and he then announces on October 1st, 1977, uh, well, he announces that on October 1st, 77, there's going to be um, a reconvening of the Geneva Peace Conference in Geneva, Switzerland, where he wants to invite all parties to. Now, this was opposed by Israel. It was opposed by Jewish American leaders, and they perceived it as an attempt to strong-arm Israel into negotiations. This then precipitated when there was pushback from the Israelis, Sadat just took things into his own hand and you're right, he then announced he was going to Jerusalem. Um, and then after the great handshakes and, and the Knesset speeches, things got stuck. And Carter you know, stepped in, in uh, early set 78 and began forcing the two parties to negotiate again. And when he got stuck with them again, he finally invited them to come to Camp David for 13 days of private personal diplomacy that we all know about now. Well, and we know a little bit more thanks to your book, by the way. You have, a, you have an excellent chapter in which you, you chronicle each day at Camp David, about two weeks of highly personal negotiations. And please don't, don't be humble. What new ground did you break in part with the diaries and records you could, uh, you could consult, but also speaking with Mr. Carter and what he remembers? Yes, well, <clears throat> I have a new narrative. Uh, partially based on archives that were open and available to other historians, but there's been a lot been, that has been declassified in recent years, um, including Carter's diary, and I got hold of parts of Carter's unpublished Camp David diary. And, uh, you know, National Security Council documents and State Department documents, uh, CIA stuff, all much of it released in the last few years. Mm -hmm. And I argue a different narrative than most historians have uh, taken on the Camp David Accords. Conventionally, the, the argument is made, well, Carter achieved a great personal diplomatic triumph, but it was a separate peace between Israel and, and Egypt. He took Egypt off the battlefield for Israel. Um, uh, which is still true to this day, but he didn't. Uh, uh, he didn't get a comprehensive Middle East peace, and uh, he left the Palestinians out in the cold. Well, I argue, in fact, that in Carter's mind, he actually did get a uh, package deal that included Palestinian autonomy, negotiated over five years with a freeze of all the settlements in the West Bank. Ah, that is such a key element, that by the way, because, because, because of course in the news, and even a young guy like me 
covered it in September of 1978. They had a peace, the, the outlines of a peace treaty between Egypt and Israel, which became a full treaty the next April, only when Jimmy Carter went to Jerusalem and Cairo and worked on it in person. Uh, but in September of 78, it was announced with autonomy for the Palestinians of the West Bank and Gaza, something they had never had before, even if not fully defined. Right. But the settlements, the Jewish settlements in the West Bank and Gaza, uh, Jimmy Carter was well aware of what they were, where they were, and that Begin wanted them to grow. And he insisted that the settlements had to be frozen. And he got Begin to agree to a side letter. And this was on the very last day of the Camp David 13-day sojourn. And in Carter's mind, he truly believes that Begin had agreed to this. And then what happened was they go to the White House, they fly in the helicopters down that Sunday and have a signing ceremony. And suddenly the side letter that was agreed to has been changed and Carter rejected it. And the Israelis around Begin, including Moshe Dayan, agreed that the language that had been changed and they would reinstate the agreed upon language, i.e. a freeze on the settlements for five years. And of course it never happened. And Begin, having gotten what he wanted from Anwar Sadat, uh, within two days began talking about building more settlements. And Carter was outraged. Now, this is actually coming back to your original question at the beginning of our session. Why did Carter begin to become perceived as so anti-Israeli? Well, he was outraged that Begin had deceived him. And he truly believed that Begin had uh, either agreed and then withdrawn what he had agreed to, or he had deceived him. And deceiving an American president is an outrageous thing. Now, you know, this is a very controversial narrative. It's a hard truth in my mind. It's going to be controversial, but I would just put it to you that, you know, who do you believe? The, the president of the United States who campaigned on saying that I will never lie to you, or Menachem Begin? <laughs> who everyone understood was a difficult uh, personality and uh, was obstreperous and uh, hard to pin down. And in any case, this is the source of Carter's determination to relentlessly pursue Israel on the settlements because he believed that they were the major obstacle to a two-state two solution. And of course, that's where we're now stuck today. Now, I know that Mr. Carter is well aware that when he titled one of his books about 10, 12 years ago, uh, Apartheid, something about Israel's choice, you know, keep the land or have peace. And he knew what he was doing. I happened to do a radio interview peace with him. not Apartheid. Uh, well, on, on publication of the book, you know, why did you choose to feature that word? And he I said, I asked no, that question. <laughs> Yeah, well, there, I, 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 he wanted attention, but I think he wanted to warn what it would become. Is, it, is that how you'd put it? Yes. Well, you know, I asked him, why did you choose that title? And weren't you advised by people like Stu Eisenstadt and others to change the title, not to use that word apartheid? 
And he said, yes, that's true. They did advise me not to do it, but I thought that it was the right thing to do and that this was the heart of the issue. And the title was, uh, you know, Israel, Palestine, peace, not apartheid. Meaning you have a choice between peace or apartheid. And of course, you know, it was very controversial at the time. And some of his uh, uh, Jewish American advisors at the Carter Center resigned in protest. Um, and I asked him if, if actually the title had been thrust on him by his famous editor, Alice Mayhew at Simon and & Schuster. And, and who I knew, I knew Alice would understand that that title would help to sell some books. And in fact, it did make it controversial. And he sold 275,000 copies in hardcover of that. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, he said that it was his title and he was determined to put the word out there. Now, today, I have to say, you know, it's really hard not to pay attention to the fact that all sorts of people are using that word to describe where we're at. Or or where we're or where we're headed, to be fair, including some Israeli politicians, former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, for instance, warning some years ago, we're headed that way unless Israel decides what it wants to do in the territories, etc. But okay, Jimmy Carter was breaking ground as he does. Uh, One quick reminder here in the middle. Mr. Carter has reached what age? How old is he? Ninety six. He'll be ninety seven on October 1st. He's okay. still with us, and I saw him just uh, two and a half weeks ago. He and Rosalind were were marking a, a wedding anniversary. 75th wedding anniversary. Okay. Anyone has to wish well. And by the way, before we leave the subject of Israel, we might end up coming back briefly. Um, is he committed to the Jews deserving, meriting their own independent state, which I guess he wanted to be in the 48 to 67 borders? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, he, uh, he is as devoted to the security of Israel as any American politician, but he believes that the best way to achieve that is to have a comprehensive peace with all of Israel's neighbors, including the Palestinians, and that there has to be compromise, territorial compromise, and that the obvious solution is some kind of two-state solution. And unfortunately, over the last 40 years, in his view, the settlements have become a major impediment to all those efforts. Yeah, for many Israeli Jews living now in the West Bank and claiming there's no problem because no country ever had sovereignty over the West Bank. Well, we don't have to go over those arguments now. We're focused on Mr. Carter and his perception and how settlements um, were a big issue, as you said, in the uh, Camp David talks and, and still persists. You, you know, the, the potted version of the Carter presidency, to look at another way to take a step back, is he was elected president shortly after Watergate. Richard Nixon resigned in 1974. He was a crook. And, uh, <laughs> and Jerry, Gerald Ford took over. Gerald Ford ran for president, thinking he'd win his own term in 76. But a man who said, I'd never lie to you, this honest, apparently, governor from Georgia, beat Gerald Ford. And so that's where we are in America at the time, right? Hungering for someone simpler. And in those first years on American policy, well, we had an energy crisis. Um, Inflation was galloping. 
there were a lot of problems at home and Jimmy Carter was trying his kind of soft-spoken, I'll wear a sweater and turn down the thermostat style. Um, what do you think? I mean, that's so different from the presidency we just had in the last four years. Oh, there's, uh, it's a, the exact opposite of uh, Mr. Trump. Um, no, you know, the perception is that Carter was uh, inept as a president and inept as a politician. And uh, again, there, it is true that there's a lot of cultural disconnect. They, the, uh, you know, Sally Quinn, the famous style section reporter at the Washington Post had a great deal of fun during those four years making fun of the country bumpkins from South Georgia. But in fact, they were quite effective. I mean, Carter had passed more legislation in his four years uh, as president than Obama did in eight years, than Bill Clinton did in his two terms. Uh, he was actually a very effective con uh, president. Uh, he uh, had control of both the House and Senate, the Democratic Party did. Uh, he you know, just br briefly, I could list uh, some of his achievements. You know, he appointed all sorts of Ralph Naderites to high positions in his administration as regular in the regulatory agencies. Um, so he got seatbelts and uh, airbags as mandatory features of every car. So saving 10,000 lives a year. He deregulated the energy sector, natural gas. He deregulated the trucking industry, the railroad industry, uh, largely to the benefit of consumers, making it possible for Americans, middle-class Americans, to travel by air for the first time. Uh, you know, he was a great environmentalist, uh, opening up millions of acres of uh, wilderness, uh, land to wilderness, federal, federally protected wilderness areas in Alaska. And in the foreign policies field, you know, he passed the Panama Canal Treaty, he negotiated the SALT II arms control agreement, he normalized diplomatic relations with China, he passed immigration reform, which made it possible to, for America to accept many more uh, uh, refugees under political asylum. He made human rights the center of American foreign policy. And this, you know, actually helped to weaken the Soviet Union's empire, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe, and helped to end the Cold War. But was he tough enough? You know, in that sense that an American president needs to be tough. And hey, we have the big humiliation of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Not many months after starting, Ayatollah Khomeini went to Iran, took over the government in 79, November of that year, American hostages are taken. 52 of them were held for 444 days till the day that Mr. Carter left office, replaced by Ronald Reagan. Right. That's all humiliating on the foreign affairs front. It was humiliating, um, but the perception of Carter as not being tough is completely wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and I cite one Hunter Thompson, the great Gonzo <laughs> journalist. <laughs> Uh, who, when he first encountered Carter in 1974, where he was giving a speech in Georgia, he realized, he came away thinking that this is the meanest politician he's ever encountered. What he was referring to was Carter's uh, uh, just ripping apart of 
Ted Kennedy on the stage, whom he then was perceiving as his major political opponent, major political um, rival for the presidency in 76. And Carter just took him down, took Ted Kennedy down. Now he did, he was, this is typical. He was ruthless politically in winning power. He knew what it take uh, to win power, to win the election. He did this in his 1970 gubernatorial race. He walked right up to the line of, with dog whistles to make sure the white working class rural voters in Georgia would vote for him. And then on the day he was inaugurated, he got up and announced that the time for segregation in the South is over. I, he, he was just Machiavellian. Now he did the same thing winning the White House. And then once he won, he decided he wasn't going to pay attention to politics. He was gonna do the right thing. He decided he was the smartest guy in the room and he usually was, best read. Um, the hardest working, and he would figure out the policy and what was the right thing to do, and he would do it. So he, he actually, you know, alienated a lot of his liberal constituency in the Democratic Party by uh, vetoing water projects that he regarded as pork barrels. He uh, canceled the B-1 bomber because he thought it was a wasteful expenditure of defense dollars, but pissed off all his all those congressmen who knew that, that pieces of the B-1 were gonna be built in, his, in their congressional districts. He was willing to take a lot of political heat. Um, and you know, you're, you're right on the issue of Iran. Well, he was a victim of historical circumstances. There was nothing I argue that he could have done to have prevented the Iranian revolution. That was gonna happen. It was an organic revolution that had grown inside Iran domestically over many years of the Shah's regime. But your book reminds us that he wanted to invite the Shah for medical treatment in the U.S., not realizing how that would offend Iran, the new Iran. Well, he, you know, after the revolution succeeded and Khomeini comes back into power, Carter is immediately told by Brzezinski and David Rockefeller and John J. McCloy and Henry Kissinger, oh, you have to give political asylum to the Shah. He's our dear old friend. Carter said no. And he said no repeatedly from January of, of 79 until November. Mm. Um, and he was really annoyed at this lobbying comp- campaign that was launched at the expense, you know, budgeted by David Rockefeller and Milbank, Tweed, Hadley, and McCloy lawyers, and Henry Kissinger. They had, they, you know, they hired people, lobbyists, uh, historian to write a book. They set up a calendar and, and targeted high-ranking Carter administration officials and people in the White House and the president himself every week to nag them to administ- admit the Shah. And Carter said no, and he wrote in his private diary, if I did this, I fear that our embassy could be at peril and hostages would be taken. Oh. He predicted what was gonna happen. Uh, but finally in November, his own secretary of state, very mild mannered Cy Vance, who had also resisted this advice, finally came to the Carter and said, you know, we've been told that he now has cancer and he needs medical treatment that he can only get in New York. And so on that basis, humanitarian basis, Carter agrees to let him in. 
And of course that turned, that information turned out to be wrong. Uh, he could have gotten this better medical treatment actually elsewhere. <laughs> uh, but so this story is filled with irony. And yes, Carter became a victim of the Iran hostage crisis. Yeah, I mean, who's to say whether the militants in Tehran were going to take over the U.S. embassy at some point anyway as part of their revolutionary activities? And then they had, if you will, the luck that nobody was stopping them. So they sat there and held their hostages, right, for well over a year. But how was, well, how was Jimmy Carter going to win re-election in 1980 against that humiliating background, even with all the good things and being a truth teller, uh, and also against a dynamic former actor who was a fine communicator, the Republican candidate, Ronald Reagan, uh, not just actor, but former governor of California. And the electoral vote count in the 1980 election, talk about humiliation, was 489 for Reagan, 49 for Carter. He was really beat. Uh, He was, but I should point out that up until two weeks before the November election, the polls had him within 5%, the margin of error. And so it was actually a much closer election than people remember because he did get a terrible drubbing in the Electoral College. You also explore in October, just before the election of 1980, whether a very senior aide to candidate Reagan was secretly negotiating with Iran. That's never been totally cleared up, the so-called October surprise. You love spy stories, and that's the kind of energy that I see in that chapter. Um, <laughs> you, know, you don't have to give it all away, but uh, what'd you come away with? Do you think Ronald Reagan was talking to Iran behind the Carter administration's back? Well, not Ronald Reagan, but Ronald Reagan's campaign manager, mm-hmm. uh, William Casey, who was a man who loved intrigue from his days in the OSS. Um, yes, he had a a private operation. I don't think Reagan even knew about it, but he uh, did go behind his own candidates back. And he, I, in a small chapter, I think I lay out the evidence and I find a document that reports that Bill Casey is in town for purposes unknown. The town meaning Madrid, Spain. And this is late July of 1980. And uh, it's alleged that that's when he met with representatives of the Ayatollah Khomeini and assured them that they would get a better deal from his candidate, Ronald Reagan, than from Jimmy Carter. And uh, I think this is, it was an act of treason. It was interference in foreign policy at worst, at at best. And uh, at worst, it was an act of treason, but it was investigated by Congress in the early 90s, and they never found the document that I write about. So I think it happened, and it's, it contributed to Carter's defeat. But let's come back to a moment. I want to come back to your, your, your uh, question about Carter's toughness and Iran. You know, the easy thing to have to have done when the hostages were taken would have been to use military force. And as big Brzezinski as national security advisor and many others suggested, well, why don't we, you know, use our jet fighters, do a bombing raid, let's mine the harbors of Iran, let's impose a naval blockade. 
Carter refused, and it was a very hard thing to do not to use military force. He refused because he didn't want to do anything that would endanger the lives of the hostages. And, you know, to be sure, his own Secretary of State was telling him, Cy Vance was saying, you know, this is going to be solved by diplomacy. Let diplomacy work. The hostages will be released when Khomeini no longer has any political, uh, can't use them any, any longer politically in terms of his own domestic efforts to consolidate his revolution. And Cy Vance was right, and Zbig Brzezinski was wrong, uh, as he often was, at, by the way. You're very book. tough on Brzezinski in this I'm book. So any, any, any book readers who want to read some tough stuff against big Brzezinski, this is your book. <laughs> right. It's true. Okay. But, but for a good reason, you're going to say, right, Kai? Yes, for good reason. He was just often very wrong. And, you know, this is, again, a, a peculiar thing. I mean, I, uh, I write about Brzezinski and his relationship with Carter a lot because it's really interesting. They were two very opposite kinds of personalities. If you don't know, if you don't know Mika Brzezinski's father, the late Zbig Brzezinski, still had his Polish accent. He was kind of a Kissinger, very serious about world affairs, had some old-fashioned ways of stopping the Russians. Uh, not Jimmy Carter's school of thought. Right. No, and, and when Carter became president during the transition, you know, he asked for advice from a lot of people, and he was repeatedly told not to hire Brzezinski, and, and specifically not to hire Brzezinski and Vance as part of his, his two major foreign policy uh, teammates, uh, because they couldn't work together, because they had two different worldviews. And Carter's response to Richard Holbrook, for instance, was that, no, I think I can handle that. I like a multitude of voices. I like, you know, to get contrary advice and I can, I can manage this. Well, Brzezinski was a very disruptive influence. Um, he was a sort of bureaucratic infighter in, in, in the way that Cy Vance was not. And he constantly undermined Vance and the surprising thing to me, though, was to find in the archives that Brzezinski was, as national security advisor, he had full access to the president almost every day. And he would come to Jimmy Carter with 100 ideas every day. I exaggerate a little bit, but that's what Carter, that's how Carter phrased it. And Carter said that he would have to shoot down 98 of them. Uh, you know, he was constantly urging Carter to be tougher, to use military force. And Carter would scribble in the margins, oh, like Mayaguez, like mm -hmm. when Henry Kissinger used military force on the uh, Mayaguez freighter ship in, off the coast of Cambodia. And the result was a great loss of life unnecessarily. Carter was very reluctant to use force. He also disagreed with Brzezinski's Cold War vision of of what the, the nature of the Soviet uh, enemy was. Uh, he, in one of his earliest speeches on foreign policy, he talked about, we are now finally here in America going to be free of our inordinate fear of communism that justifies our uh, honing up to any 
right-wing dictator around the world who claims to be anti-communist. Well, Brzezinski was horrified by that language, disagreed profoundly, and was constantly trying to get Carter to be a a hot, cold warrior. (laughs) You know, know, I'm thinking that some of that, just small parts of what you've been describing um, were around you know, in the smart newspapers uh, during the Carter presidency in the late 70s. Uh, but, but on the other hand, I mean, you, you write in the book as though, as though journalists and newspapers were often poisoning the waters for Carter. I mean, as you've mentioned, they, Washingtonians didn't really respect these folks coming from Georgia. But here's a lovely nugget in your goldmine of information. You wrote gossip journalism masked as investigative reporting became a major phenomenon during the Carter presidency. I guess we have a lot of that now, gossip journalism, and biased, opinionated journalism that they say is an investigative report. Uh, but that, that was part, of course, that's just after Watergate, right? Publishers thought that's what the public wants. And young reporters like you and, and me were eager to be, you know, the new Bob Woodward or Carl Bernstein, weren't we? Mm-hmm. We wanted to find a new scandal. I can remember those days in the 70s. Mm. Um, Take down this administration. Okay, so now you're not just a biographer, but as Suzanne Borden, our host, mentioned, you are executive director of the Leon Levy Center for Biography at the City University of New York. So you have joined a, a, a group, a large group of biographers. You've gotten to know them. You have your own style as to what you do. So you've written about people who are dead and gone. You've now written about Jimmy Carter. Um, what's the approach? You know, you, you, you try to push aside any opinions you held before and say, I'm going to write about this person because he was interested. What do you do? Uh, well, my, my technique is, is pretty simple and straightforward. I spend the first year just digging into the archives, going, you know, day after day, box by box, folder by folder, taking pictures with my iPhone these days. It used to be Xeroxing. Um, And you just gather a lot of documents and then you begin to do interviews and you try to ask it at the end of every interview, uh, oh, do you happen to have any old correspondence or diaries? (laughs) Well, uh, (laughs) You ask in that casual, non-threatening way. Yes, yeah. And uh, you know, in my first interview with President Carter, I pointed out to him at the end of the interview that I couldn't find any of the papers in his presidential library of Charlie Kerbo, a man whose name is not really well known, but was his personal lawyer from 1962 all the way through the presidency. And Charlie Kerbo was sort of known to me, he was described to me as the Atticus Finch of the Carter administration. Uh, South Georgia, slow talking, draw, you know, this South Georgia draw, uh, a powerful lawyer in Atlanta who nevertheless drove to work in a pickup truck and owned a farm with several mules on it, <laughs> mules that he talked about all the time. Uh, and uh, Kerbo was his, you know, what's the Italian word? The consigliere? There we go. <laughs> it just means counsel, yes. And, and uh, he was always behind the scenes. He never took a job in the administration, but he was up in the White House every couple of weeks and would quietly sit in the 
back of a meeting and then go and tell Carter what he thought. Well, anyway, I said Carter to, I pointed out to Carter that he, none of his papers were in the, the presidential library. And he thought that was odd. And he turned to his aide, well, let's see if we can find them. Three days later, they called, his aide called me and said, we found five boxes of Kerbo papers in the attic of his widow. Cool. And six months later, I was allowed full access to those five boxes. And it was, it's, it proved to become the backbone of my narrative because it allowed me to personalize the story and show Carter's thinking and vis-a-vis Kerbo's memos. So I, I work from the documents and uh, then when I start to write, this you won't find believable, but it's true. I have no outline. And I simply get up every morning and I try to write chronologically and I write the most interesting, fun anecdote that I can find in the documents for the interviews. And I write that up and one thing leads to another and you try to keep it into a narrative and you, you're constantly adding and tweaking. But um, anyway, it, it, it took six years. And only later are you, and only later are you figuring out how to cut it into individual chapters, not, not at the beginning. Well, you know, I write chronologically and so it's pretty straightforward, but yeah. The hard thing about writing a presidential biography, as opposed to some of the other uh, subjects that I've done, is that it's a president, and a president's life every day is filled with dozens of issues. So you do have to find a way to collapse the narrative. So you know, when I come to the Middle East, uh, you know, I, I weave in and out. I show he's dealing in February and March of '77 with trying to invite. Rabin to the White House and then Sadat, but he's also dealing with trying to pass an energy bill. And so you've got to weave it all together. But at a certain point, you have to step back and say, well, you know, explain to the reader how all this comes together in one subject. So the Camp David Accords is one heavy chapter. Um, Oh yeah, that uh, and there's so much that's excellent here. Now, Kai, before we turn to questions from people who've been watching, and please, you can use the Q&A and type in some questions, and hopefully they will be polite and to the point and directed mostly to our biographer author here, Kai Bird. Um, I just wanted to ask you this, with, with all, when you write a presidential biography, you're also now deeply in American politics. And, 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 and you, you've studied how the game was played in 76 when Carter won, and in 80 when he lost. And here you are like me, a US citizen, spending a lot of time in Washington and seeing the last few elections in this country. The excitement of America's first African-American president, Mr. Obama, he's reelected. Then the country goes in a very different direction, deciding that Donald Trump's the kind of man it wants, but four years later, a different direction again. And older, we already know his face, well-known as a pro-labor Democrat, Mr. Biden. There, there. <laughs> Again, I gave you the potted version of U.S. politics. Is the, is the game entirely different from 76 and 80, or it has the same elements? Well, it, it is very different. I mean, Jimmy Carter could never have gotten elect, elected in 2020. Oh. Um, you know, oh. he, he was an outlier in 76, and he's even more of an outlier today. Um, but on the other hand, you Donald know, Trump was an outlier. I mean, just for what it's in worth. a different way, yes. 
but Carter was uh, an outlier, you know, in a good way. And uh, what, but what interested me about his four years in the White House was that it, it obviously was a tipping point in American history between this old democratic New Deal kind of politics and what came afterwards, which was the neocons, the conservative the conservative Reagan revolution. Yeah, you have a chapter uh, that says it was a weird time for liberals. Uh, it's a weird, weird time for liberals, yes. <laughs> so that's what that I wanted to, for, for myself, I wanted to figure out how did that happen? Why did, uh, and, you know, part of it is that uh, the country was actually more conservative than you or I thought in the 70s. And it had gone through, yes, the Vietnam tragedy and Watergate. And in reaction to that, they, the electorate went for Carter. And, and with the South, you know, he won the South overwhelmingly. And he won the evangelical vote. And he won uh, white working class votes, uh, which are, we, as we now know, Trump voters today. Um, but by four, within four years, he, he had lost the evangelical vote because he insisted on separation of church and state. He refused to give tax exempt status to you know, Christian white academies that were popping up all over the South to evade the end of segregation. And why did he lose so many in the white working class? Uh, because of because of stagflation, the energy crisis, the, the, the dollar a gallon gasoline prices that shocked white working class Americans. And that, that was high. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so he's actually a, a, an interesting, you know, to read about Carter's political experience in the 70s helps us to understand what we went through with Trump and what we're dealing with now. And I, ironically enough, Biden, Joe Biden was an early ally of Jimmy Carter's. He was the first US Senator to endorse Carter in 76. And they became, they were close friends during the White House years. Um, Biden, you know, shared actually some, some of the same views and, and attitudes that Carter was. He, he wasn't as ideological as, uh, you know, the hardline liberal congressional, you know, Tip O'Neill. He was, he was, Biden was himself somewhat of an outlier. Yeah. Uh, he took different positions on school busing, for instance, um, on abortion. Uh, and, you know, Biden is himself a rather Machiavellian politician who is a survivor. And, uh, I don't and, know, he I'm may not... seem, and he may seem sweet and sensitive, but folks who've worked with him say he's yeah. got a sharp tongue and temper. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, let's turn to questions. Suzanne Borden of Moment Magazine. You got some? Yes. Thank you both for that great conversation. Uh, let's start with uh, Carter appointed Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the U.S. Court of Appeals. What was their relationship like through the years? Uh, he didn't actually know Ruth Bader Ginsburg very well. And when he, when her name was uh, passed to the White House as a possible nominee, he was warned that she was 
uh, outspoken and uh, controversial and would be a controversial appointment. And Carter looked at it and said, oh, I'm fine with that. And he appointed her and he had her into the Oval Office and there's a famous picture of her shaking hands with President Carter. And he's, he's always been proud that he made that appointment, which was to the appeals court. And that was, of course, a stepping stone for her to uh, become appointed to the Supreme Court later on. Um, but he was also, he that's another forgotten fact about his presidency was that he appointed more women, more African-Americans and more Hispanics to uh, the federal judiciary than all his pre predecessors before him. And this was, you know, he it was 156 appointments and it remade the federal judiciary. Um, and much of what I guess Trump did during his four years was to roll back some, some of those uh, liberal gains. By the way, I refreshed my memory of uh, something you said about Joe Biden knowing uh, Carter. When Carter you know, was president, January of 78, you write uh, that the 35-year-old Senator Joe Biden came to visit President Carter and warned him Ted Kennedy is probably planning to challenge you for the Democratic nomination, even though you're the incumbent. And Biden conveyed that the Jewish community had a deep distrust of the president. So uh, it's been a subject. Yeah. Suzanne? Actually, somebody somebody asked a question about what new information did you discover about the rift between Ted Kennedy and Jimmy Carter, and what role did Tip O'Neill play as the intermediary? Between well, that's them? a great question. Um, yeah, no, they they were always rivals. They came from two different cultures and worlds, South Georgia and Cape Cod. They, they just didn't mix. It was oil and water. Carter always had the perception that Kennedy felt entitled, uh, felt entitled to inherit the presidency from his fallen brother. Um, and he, <clears throat> he also looked at what had happened at Chappaquiddick and thought that this was a real moral failing. So he had, you know, uh, he, he had a bad impression of Kennedy. On the other hand, they were political allies. They were both liberals. Um, they had both most notably campaigned it, uh, on the issue of national health care. Uh, Carter endorsed Kennedy's bill for a national a single payer system, essentially, um, which was very popular with the uh, United Auto Workers and other trade unions. But when he became president, he had a, a, a disagreement with Kennedy about whether they could get the bill passed. And Carter think, thought that they didn't have the votes in the Senate in particular. And that so he instead proposed, he began dragging his feet to Kennedy's great annoyance. And um, Carter instead proposed a universal catastrophic health insurance system that would only cover catastrophic events so that no American family would spend more than $5,000 on healthcare. But Kennedy turned down this idea um, and with the support of the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, he made it his campaign issue to run against Carter and to try to seize the nomination from him. So they, it turned into a great rivalry 
And Carter, uh, you know, was extremely annoyed, but determined to beat Ted Kennedy. He came and told in, in an on the record interview with a bunch of journalists that he was gonna whip Ted's ass. <laughs> and he, he did in the primaries. And by the way, for Tip O'Neill's role, you uh, absolutely summarized something great in three or four pages where Tip O'Neill was your typical Massachusetts Democrat. So he also didn't like the Georgia boys who'd moved in. And you have a wonderful line that says President Carter tried very hard to like Tip, you know, having him over for dinner and that kind of thing. But even when there was any dispute, say, at the uh, National Convention, Tip O'Neill absolutely favored the Kennedy side planks of the party platform um, and not President Carter. So it was Tip O'Neill smoothing out <laughs> any difficulty between them. Yeah, he was taking sides. He was he was he was a Kennedy man at heart. But he you know he had a difficult relationship. Tip O'Neill did with Carter in the beginning, but over the years in the White House, they they did find a way to work together. And as I su suggested earlier, they passed a, a lot of legislation. O'Neill was rather astonished at how ambitious. Carter's legislative agenda was. He says, you're giving me too many bills too quickly. Uh, he complained about it, but- Remembering how different the times were, right? O'Neill was a Democrat, of course, Speaker of the House. And so even when Jimmy Carter fails in the 80 election and Reagan becomes president, Reagan got along with Tip O'Neill too, in order yeah. to get things done. Absolutely. But coming back to Kennedy, you know, the Kennedy challenge where he tried to wrest the nomination from a sitting president ultimately failed, but he refused to drop out. And, you know, he was campaigning and being critical of Carter right up to the Democratic Convention. And this, you know, this split the party and uh, it weakened Carter in his bid for the, against Reagan in the general election. So, you know, many of Carter's aides told me many, several of Carter's aides told me that uh, Carter lost the 1980 election because of the three Ks, Khomeini, Kennedy, and Ed Koch. <laughs> because Ed Koch, famously the mayor of New York, uh, was a critic of Carter uh, on Israel and thought he was wrong to pressure Menachem Begin about the settlements. And he made a big issue of that. And, and as a result, Ted Kennedy came in and won the New York primary with the help of, of, Ted, of Ed Koch, sort of a betrayal of Carter at that point. Um, so and of course, was, Reagan won New York's electoral vote. Yeah, and it was a very, so it was a very contentious uh, time. Thank you. We have time for a few more questions. Um, why did you decide to write a book uh, about Carter? And what are the most important differences between your book and the biography, uh, the book that Stu Eisenstadt wrote? Um, well, there, there, there's also a book by Jonathan Alter that came out last year. Um, let's see, I would, I would simply state or observe that that uh, Stu Eisenstadt's book is the narrative of an insider. You know, he was a Carter aide in the White House. And uh, it's a terrific book. And I relied on it and benefited from it. But it's a very long book. It's like 1,100 pages of narrative. 
Um, and it's very detailed about the energy crisis. And Eisenstadt focuses a lot on domestic issues. Um, my book sort of it is, uh, I think, a little more colorful and focused on, uh, as I suggested, some of the, the personality clashes over issues between Brzezinski and Carter and Vance and Carter um, and some of the other uh, administration people. And, and I, I, I try to paint a human portrait of the people around Carter, from Hamilton Jordan, his chief of staff, to Jody Powell, his press secretary. And, uh, and I paint the story as a tragedy in the end. And that's sort of why I have chosen the title an unfinished presidency because Carter uh, really wanted to accomplish much more and would have during a second presidency. And he used his ex-presidency the last 40 years, an extraordinary ex-presidency to work on the very issues that he, you know, motivated him in part to win the White House in, in the beginning of poverty and building houses for Habitat for Humanity, Middle East peace. Observing elections worldwide and, observing stamping, elections. and stamping out endemic diseases in places like Africa and Asia. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's a, a seamless story actually between the presidency and the ex-presidency. It's the same guy. Mm -hmm. And someone would like to know how much influence, if any, was Rosalind Carter in Jimmy's life? And I would also add his mother as well. Well, I show, I think, that Jimmy Carter is an outlier in South Georgia precisely because of his mother, Miss Lillian, who many of us will remember as that funny old lady who went on the Johnny Carson's show and had all these great one-liners. <laughs> um, she was a sort of classic Southern eccentric gentlewoman who could break all the rules. And by that, I mean, she could break the segregation rules. You know, Jimmy Carter's father was a racist. He believed in white supremacy. And Carter grew up in a highly segregated society. But Miss Lillian broke those rules and taught young Jimmy to believe in equality. And uh, he carried that with him all his life. And uh, yes, uh, coming to, Rosie, as he calls her, Rosalind Carter. He married her when she was 19. She was someone he had known all his life. She too grew up in Plains. And, uh, you know, she never finished college, but uh, she was a business partner in the Carter Peanut Warehouse. She was the one who kept the accounts and was the sort of the business manager. And she turned out to be an extremely competent woman who had a political sensibility that actually Jimmy Carter lacked because she loved, she, while she was initially very shy on the campaign trail and was uh, almost nauseous when she had to give up and give a speech, she uh, learned to do it. And by the time they were in the White House, she was the one that Carter would send out to go on meet the press and be grilled by the journalists. and. She was very poised, she was a beautiful woman and she could be quite articulate. And uh, 
you know, like Eleanor Roosevelt, she made the first lady, a ser the office of the first lady, a serious job. She sat in on meetings, took minutes, never spoke out at cabinet meetings or such, but she would take notes and then she would have a regular luncheon every week, once a week with Carter on TV trays. And they, she would use this opportunity to grill him and to tell him what he was doing wrong and to lobby for her favorite issues. And so, yes, she was highly influential. And uh, of course they have remained a partnership to this day. They just celebrated their 75th wedding anniversary two weeks ago. Great, and, and lastly, uh, someone would like to know, have you been in touch with uh, former President Carter uh, since your book has come out and uh, what has he said about it, his reactions? Well, uh, I did see him at this 75th wedding anniversary a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I, along with 300 other people, I got a chance to shake his hand again and thank him for his, uh, his help in the writing of the book. Um, and I sent him, before that I had sent him a uh, autographed copy of the book with an inscription and, and he sent me a nice note back thanking me for the inscription. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know if he's had a chance. He's very elderly now, almost 97. I don't know if he's had a chance to actually read the book. He and Rosie do uh, listen to audible books. Um, so he may be listening to it, but I do know from his closest aides that they are all um, quite approving and, and uh, have enjoyed reading the book. And, and many of them have been calling me up and telling me stories that I wish I had, had, I had been told earlier that I could have included in the book. <laughs> That's an old story. <laughs> so thank you, Kai. Thank you, Dan, very much for this wonderful conversation. Uh, Dan is holding up the book. I encourage you to buy The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter. We will send a follow-up email later this week, and we'll have the link in there as well. I want to thank everybody for joining us. I'm sorry we couldn't get to more questions. I just want to remind people to go to Moment's website, momentmag.com, where you can sign up for uh, our Zoominar, which is this Thursday, about writing Holocaust fiction. And next week, uh, week from today, with musicians Ben Sidron and Joe Alterman. Again, Kai, Dan, thank you, and have a good night. Thank you. Thank you.